we are in week three of our series called Close Encounters, and what we're trying to discover in this series is by looking at, at Jesus and some of his ordinary encounters um, with ordinary people, we're trying to discover what God is like by discovering what Jesus is like, because we believe the Bible says very clearly that Jesus is God. In fact, Jesus said, when you see me, you have seen the Father. Um, I love this quote by A.W. Tozer. He's a, he's a, a brilliant thinker who has forgotten more than I will ever know. Um, but he, uh, he said this, What I believe about God is the most important thing about me. What I believe about God is the most important thing about me. Because what I believe about God is going to begin to shape my identity, isn't it? I'm going to start to see myself based on what I see, think about God and what I believe to be true about God is going to shape how I see myself. And once my identity begins to be shaped by that, then it's going to begin to shape the way that I think, right? And when the way that I think is going to be based on what I believe to be true about God. And so when my thoughts are shaped that way, it's going to begin to shape my actions and the way that I live my life. And so what I believe about God is the most important Thing about me. And that's really what we're trying to discover in this series. By looking at Jesus and the things that he says and the things that he does, it gives us a glimpse because Jesus is God. And so it shows us what God the Father is like and the heart that he has for his people. Now, um, a few years ago, uh, I worked at a church in California, and every year our student ministry staff, we would go um, on, a, on a staff retreat. It was just the staff and their spouses, and we would go to Palm Springs, um, Palm Desert, and uh, we'd go for a few days. It was incredible. We would go in the summer, which was off-season, because when we got there, it was, it's like 118 degrees in the shade, right? Like, it's ridiculous. I remember, um, I remember one of the, the guys there, he left his flip-flops out in the sun, and they literally, like, melted to the pool deck. It, it's so hot. And so all you do for three days, all we would do is just kind of stand in the water in the pool and watch the water evaporate because there's really, there's not much else to do. We would wait till it got down to a brisk 102 at night and then we would go out for dinner together and that was really, we would do that for like three days and, and it was awesome. And so when we were let, ready to leave California, we have uh, my wife Laura and our 11-year-old son Ty. At the time he was like four. Um, we asked Ty, we said, dude, where, where do you want to do one last trip together as a family before we leave California? And we said, do you want to go to Disney or do you want to go to SeaWorld? World or Tijuana, Mexico. We, we were giving him options. We weren't sure what he wanted to do. Um, and he said, I want to go to that hotel that you guys went to that you never took me to. He was a little bitter, um, apparently. And so, um, and so we we're like, okay. So we took him to that hotel and it's 118 degrees and we stood in the pool for three days and, and watched the water evaporate. And on the last day, it was the, the last couple hours before we left, we were all just kind of relaxing and we had a raft. And so we're, we're just kind of standing in the pool and just kind of leaning on the raft and just talking about, about kind of what's next in, in our family. And all of a sudden, Laura looks at Ty and she goes, what's that up your nose? A uh, normal mom question, I guess, but it kind of took us by surprise. And as a, as a four-year-old, right, Ty's response was to do what most four-year-olds would do, or maybe it's just what most guys would do, I'm not sure, but he went, right? He snorted it up, and now it's gone, right? So she looks at me, and she goes, look up his nose and see what that was. And I'm like, whoa, right? There's no way I'm looking up that joker's nose. I know what's already up there. It's not like I'm going to look up there and go, oh, wow, diamonds. Who knew, right? Or the Sistine Chapel. Look at the hands coming. I'm like, it's not my first day on the planet. I am not looking up his nose. There, there's absolutely no way. And so um, she wasn't satisfied with that answer. So she went into mom mode, right? She cups her hands and she puts them under his nose and she goes, blow, right? Which... 
is totally fine if you're in the shower, right? But not in a public pool with people and stuff like that. And so I'm like, I'm embarrassed. I'm like, this is terrible. And so, so Ty like starts blowing and then he runs out of breath. So he starts inhaling and it's like the tower of terror, right? This thing going up and down inside of his, his nose. And she goes all medieval on him, right? Like she like reaches in on like the third try. Her fingers are like vice grips and she grabs a hold of this thing and she starts pulling. And I swear it, she's pulling his nostril is stretching like it's going to give birth, right? It's just, it's unbelievable. And she, she pops this thing out of his nose and holds it up like she won the Super Bowl. And, I, and now I'm interested. I'm like, now I want to see what was up his nose. And so we look at it, a button. The kid had a button up his nose. And I'm not talking like a little button, like it was like a good size button. And as a parent, right, there's a whole flood of questions that start going through your mind when you see something like that. I don't know if this was the best question, but it was the first one that came to my mind. I'm like, dude, what happened to the rest of the shirt? Because <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what's going on here, right? And, and so it's incredible. And it turns out he's had this button up his nose for three and a half weeks. I'm not kidding. Laura worked at a school. Ty went to that school. And so like after school, he'd stay for the after school kind of daycare program thing. And she would go out and put sunscreen on him. And she traces this back three and a half weeks earlier. She went out there and there was this little kid going, Tyler's got a button up his nose. He's like, no, I don't. Yes, he did. He totally had a button up his nose. And so now I'm like, I haven't seen my jumper cables in a while. He's like, and what else is like up there, right? Now you're probably wondering, how in the world is he going to tie this in to anything about the Bible? I don't know. It's just a great story, and I felt like I needed to... No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Work with me a little bit here, okay? Work with me. Now, what if Laura, what if Laura had, had looked at Ty and, and realized there was something going on here and said, you know what, I can't relate. I've never had a button up my nose. Therefore, son, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. I just, I just can't relate to your issue. Or what if she looked at him and said, you know what, I'm, I'm just too embarrassed by this. I'm too embarrassed that you've got this thing there, and I'm not going to cut my hands and ask you, and, and, and stuff. Kind of like me, because I'm like playing the how long can I hold my breath underwater game, because I'm, I'm embarrassed by what's going on. Right? What if she just said, I'm just too embarrassed to help you out with this? What if Laura said, you know what, Ty? Really, it's your own fault. I mean, you put the button up your nose, and so to teach you a lesson based on principle, you're going to have to figure out how to get the button out of your nose, right? What if Laura didn't take the initiative and help Ty? Well, the answer is clear. He, he would still have a button up his nose, right? That, that's what the answer would be. And so I WebMD'd that to see what exactly that would look like, and, and this is what he would look like today. Right, which is so embarrassing, right? I, just leave him at the doctor if it looked like that, right? And, and so, so, but what if Laura hadn't taken that initiative? I want to ask you a couple questions. Have you ever had a situation in your life where you couldn't fix it or you couldn't resolve it on your own? Maybe it was a physical thing. Maybe it was something minor like the flu, right? But we know when you're in the middle of the flu, it doesn't feel very minor and you're nauseous and, and you're, you're achy and you've got all this stuff and we pop vitamin C and we try anything we can to, to kind of speed it up. But, but you, there's really, there's nothing you can do to fix yourself. What if it was something more, more, a bigger problem than that? What if it was cancer? What if it's something, and, and, and maybe you've been in that situation where you say, you know what? I would love to be able to fix this problem. I would love to be able to fix this solution, to find a solution for this. But on my own, I, I just simply can't do it. Maybe it's, it's, maybe it's an emotional thing. Maybe it's anger issues. Maybe you're paralyzed by worry and fear. Maybe it's some resentments from the past that you've just been holding on to and, and you've tried and you've tried and you would love to figure out a way to let those things go, but, but they've just got a grip on your life. 
Maybe it's a habit or an addiction. And when you think back, you go, Donnie, I never intended, when I first started this, I never thought it would turn into something that's as, as big as this. I never thought it would turn into something that has th this hold on my life. And if I could fix it, if I could change it, if, if I could do something to, to, to make this situation different, I would do anything. But I can't fix it on my own. I can't change it on my own. Maybe it's a relationship. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard, how hard you work at it, Maybe it's just the other person isn't receptive. Maybe you just keep slipping back into bad habits. And you just can't fix it on your own. Here's the second question. Have you ever had an opportunity to help someone with something that they couldn't do for themselves? Have you ever had that opportunity? Maybe it's in a financial way. Maybe it's just by spending time with them. Maybe using skills or gifts or, or a passion that you have. Maybe it's just by meeting some of their personal needs. Maybe it's someone in your small group. Maybe it's somebody that you serve with. But have you ever had an opportunity to, to, to be invested in the life of someone else and, and to help them out where they are? See, I think we've all had those moments. We've all had those moments and those things in our lives where we can't fix it ourselves, those situations that we can't change. And, and it, what it does is it causes us to be very dependent on other people. It causes us to feel helpless at times. And, and, and eventually it leads to a place where sometimes we just get hopeless, right? You say, there's no hope. I'm never going to change. Things will never be different. This is just who I am. This is just what my life is going to be like. And we've all had opportunities where we could come alongside of, of other people and help them in a way that would impact their life, that would change their life, that would make their life better. Here's the two truths that I want to talk about today. One is that God cares about those in need. And, and so whatever your needs are, as we sit here today, I want you to know that God cares about your needs. But the other truth is this, is that God cares about how we treat those in need. Today we're, we're going to take a look at a story of, of Jesus kind of hanging out by the pool. And this is an incredible encounter that, that impacts, I believe, all of us here today. And so if you have your Bible, if you want to turn to, to John chapter 5, we're going to pick it up in, uh, in verse 1. And if you don't have your Bible, it's totally cool. Um, you can follow along on the screens. We'll, we'll bring it up there. Um, let me just give you a quick background to, to this story as, as we get into it. Um, in, in Jesus' day, there, there was no accommodation for, for the disabled or, or for the handicapped. There were no special parking places. There, there were no ramps. They didn't have electric wheelchairs. There, there wasn't braille in the elevators. There, there was nothing for them. And so what would typically happen is, is if you were disabled, if you were sick, if you had a, a condition that, that other people couldn't help you and you couldn't just kind of handle it and go through what we would maybe call normal life, right? If you were in that, that place, what they would do is they would gather everybody together. And, and basically your job, your life became begging, begging for money, begging for food, begging for clothing, anything that, that you could get to, to trade for whatever your needs were. And so people would go to or they would place them at very strategic places. They would place them at the city gates. They would place them at the entrance to the temple. Places that were high traffic places where people were coming in and out, where they would have the most success as they begged, as they asked for help, as they cried out to the people around them. Pick it up in verse 1, John chapter 5. It says, Afterwards, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches, crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. 
Let me just give you a, a picture. Just stop for a second here. And, um, Jerusalem was a, was a fortified city, okay? So there was this massive wall all the way around Jerusalem. It was high and it was wide, right? And it was this incredible thing. And so it, it, to have a wall around your city for defensive purposes, obviously you needed to have gates. And so there were five gates in the city of Jerusalem, places where people could enter in and out of the city. One of them is called the Sheep Gate. And that is the place where they would bring animals in and out, okay? And so that's where we are. And now near this is this pool, right? This pool in, called the Pool of Bethesda inside of Jerusalem. And, and, and basically around it, it's these two pools, and there were five covered porches. And so it was open area with these, these little covers or awnings over the top of them, enough to just try and help protect people from the weather. And your job, if you were sick or if you were blind or lame or paralyzed, as I said, is that you would go to this place. Your job was, was to beg for your life, right? If you can call it that. And I don't want to be overly graphic with this, but I want you just to imagine what this situation would be like. I want you to imagine the sights as we have these crowds of people, right, that, that, that are gathered around these pools in all kinds of different ailments and all kinds of different conditions, all with different needs. I want you to, to listen and, and hear the sounds in your head as different people are crying out for different things. Some that are in pain, some that are in need, some longing for a, a attention. You can hear the moans, you can hear the sounds of this crowd as they're lying there in, in need and in hurt and in desperation. I want you to imagine the smells. And I don't want to be graphic with that. But not only do you have people there that... that some of them couldn't take care of themselves. It's also placed right at the sheep gate, right? Right at the gate where the animals are, are ushered in and out of, of, the, of Jerusalem. And so you can imagine the smells and you can imagine the sounds and you can imagine the sight of these people. This isn't Palm Springs, right? This isn't a vacation hotspot. This isn't our community pools that we roll up to. This is a place of, of utter despair. Verse five, one of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him and knew how long he had been ill, he asked him, would you like to get well? I love this, right? Because Jesus came for him. The cool part in this is this man didn't know Jesus, right? Because later on, if you read further on in the story, you'll see that the Pharisees, that Jesus heals this man. Sorry, ruined the end of the story for you. But Jesus heals this man, right? And then he goes outside and the Pharisees say, well, who healed you? And he says, I don't know. Right? Jesus does, or this man doesn't know who Jesus is, but what I love about this story is that Jesus knew all about him. In fact, it says that Jesus saw him and knew him, right? And, and by saw him, this is deeper than just like people watching. Like, I don't know if, if you're like me, if you like to go to the state fair, and I don't like to go to the state fair. It's not just for rides and it's not for the food. I like to go just to watch people, right? And you just sit there and you go, wow, I didn't know people dressed like that, right? I mean, that's incredible. And so, so this is more than just like people watching, right? Jesus is intently, purposefully looking for this man in this crowd of pain and hurt and despair. But even more than that, it says that Jesus knew him. He knew he had been sick for 38 years, right? He knew what his condition was. He knew that he was all alone. He knew that, that, that he had no one else to, to help him, that he's there hanging out by the pool. Jesus knew that as we're about to see, he had all but given up on, on his life, that Jesus knew what his needs were, and Jesus knew that he was there to do something about it. Have you ever been chosen for something? 
My wife, Laura, she just celebrated her 40th birthday, and she gave me permission to say that. Um, I, I'm smart enough to ask first. Um, but, but she did her 40th birthday, and, and for her 40th birthday, she said, I want to run a half marathon. And so she began training a few months out and became very disciplined, and she trained and trained and trained. And a couple weeks ago, at her 40th birthday, she ran 13.1 miles. She did an incredible job. I was there at the finish line. It was amazing as she came in, huge big smile on her face. She had set a, a time goal for herself that she shot. She had one of her best friends from South Carolina had driven up and, and ran the race with her. She's married to me. She pretty much had the best life ever, right? And so, so she's like, we're celebrating her. We're like, this is incredible, great job. But there was more to it. You, you see, it, it gets even better. They were giving a car away. And, and, and at this race, for all of the runners, they were going to do a draw. And it's not just a car, but it was like a sweet car, right? Like a pastor can't drive this kind of car or people won't give to the church kind of car, right? It was like that kind of car. And so I was super excited about this. And, and she goes, so they start drawing her bib number and they start pulling out number after number after number. And they chose her number. Right, this is crazy. And so she is now, she goes up to the front and the crowd is around her and they're cheering and, and they have two bags, right? And in these bags are these envelopes. And what she has to do is she has to reach into each bag and she has to pull out the two car envelopes. And as she pulls out the two car envelopes, she wins the car, right? And so she reaches it. It's like the price is right. This is incredible. And so she reaches in the first bag and she grabs an envelope and she opens it up and guess what's on it? The car, right? She's got the car on the first one. And so she is halfway there. All she has to do now is reach into that second bag and grab the envelope with the car and I'm driving in style, right? Like this, I'm so excited for her. And she's like shaking and the crowd is yelling and she reaches in that second bag and she pulls out the envelope and she opens it up and guess what it had on there? She won! She won! Oh, she didn't win the car. I've never been more disappointed in her in my life. But she won some cash prize, which was cool, right? That was a good consolation. I can't tell you how much, because then Mike will check our tithing to see if, I, if we actually tithed on it. Um, I'm just kidding. We did. Accounting. Calm down. Um, and so, right? And so, so she won, and, and it was just incredible. But have you ever been chosen for something? I have a friend of mine. He, he, served, he comes here to Hope, and he served in the student ministry when we were here. And he's a major league baseball player. And, and he was telling me about the day when he was in high school, that he was at school in the morning. He went home for, for lunch, and he got the phone call right, that you have been drafted to a Major League Baseball team. Needless to say, he didn't go back to school for that afternoon, right? He kind of stayed home. You know that feeling when you are chosen for something? I love this part of the story because, because this guy didn't have anything to do with it. God chose him. Seven billion people on this planet. And the incredible thing is that, that, that God's word says that God knows every single one of us. He knows all about us. Right? And, and even though this guy didn't recognize Jesus, Jesus recognized him. And he pursues him relentlessly and compassionately. And then Jesus asks him a question. He says, would you like to get well? And I read that question. I think, this guy's been sick for 38 years. It's either the, the dumbest question ever, right? Which is sometimes what my son um, says ab about my questions. Things like, do you think you need a shower? Um, he does. Um, right? Or it's the most profound question ever. But what I love about this is that Jesus asked this question. He doesn't force himself on this man, but he approaches him in his need and says, do you, would you like to get well? And the Greek word translated for well is the word hygiene. It's where we get the word hygiene from in our English language, right? It means whole, it means complete, it means full, it means healthy, right? This is a very deep very, very powerful word with a lot of quality to it. 
Jesus walks up to this guy and he says, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be complete? Do you want to be full? And this guy's now faced with a, with a, a choice, isn't he? That he has to decide if, if he wants Jesus to heal him or not. In verse 7, look at his response. He says, I, I can't, sir, the sick man said. For I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm trying to get there, someone else always gets in ahead of me. Now that might not make much sense to us. And if you have your Bible with you, you may have noticed that, that there is no verse 4 in this passage. It jumps from verse 3 to verse 5. Right, because what, what scholars believe is that verse 4 wasn't actually written by John. It was written by, by others later as they were translating the Bible to, to kind of add some, some context to this story so that we understand. And we read this in verse 7. He says, I, I can't get well because I don't have anyone to help me into the pool when the waters are stirred up. I, I'm all by myself. Here's what verse 4 says, and you might find if you have your Bible, it might be in the bottom in the notes section. It says this, For an angel of the Lord came from time to time and stirred up the water. And the first person to step in after the water was stirred was healed of whatever disease he had. You see, it was thought that, that God or, or an angel of God came down and, and stirred up the waters of the pool every once in a while. And the first person that would jump into the pool was healed. Now, this is crazy, isn't it? I mean, you think about this, that you've got, you've got these lame and paralyzed and blind men and women and maybe even children that are gathered around the edge of the pool and they're just waiting. They're just waiting for, for the water to, to stir up, right? They're waiting, listening to, to hear if something happens because they believe that if they're the first ones in, imagine this scene as, as they're all crowding around the edge because the first one in possibly has a chance of, of being healed. And so if you're not the first one in, right, if you're farther back, when you hear that, when you, the commotion's happening and, and people are jumping and diving and rolling and whatever they need to do to try and get in that water, you're trying to gather your stuff and you're trying to, to scooch a little bit closer, aren't you? Because you're hoping one day eventually you will get to the edge, you'll get next to the pool, you will be the first one in to be healed. And even with all the historical research available to us today, we, we have no way of knowing if this really happened, but they believed it happened. Whether it was a superstition or not, we don't know. But they believed that these, this crowd of blind and paralyzed and lame and sick people gathered at this pool. This wasn't just a place to go and beg, was it? This is a place of, of desperation. But we hear this man's response, and it seems like he's given up on ever being well again. There's kind of two observations in this. One is he just makes excuses. Jesus says, do you want to get well? And he says, I can't. I'm all alone. See, this is my life. These are the cards that I've been dealt. This is just who I am. And he began to find his identity in his brokenness, didn't he? What started as paralysis in his legs has now turned into paralysis of his will, paralysis of his dreams, paralysis of hope for him. But here's the second observation I see in his response. He recognizes that he needs help. I can't do it. All by myself. I have no one to help me into the pool when the waters are stirred up. See, I can relate to both of those, of making excuses and needing the help of others. A, a few years ago, we were in a car accident as a family, and, um, and it was pretty bad. And uh, Laura broke her collarbone, and she had a bunch of bruises and contusions. Ty got some, some broken glass in his, in his face, um, in his cheek. 
But I took the, the worst of it, which I'm glad of the three of us. I'm glad I took the worst of it. And, um, and, and I, was, I was pretty broken up. Um, most of my face was, was broken and, and kind of shattered. I broke ribs and punctured lungs and broke my hip and had a bunch of internal injuries and, and bleeding and trauma. Um, and, and so they rushed me to the hospital and they got Laura there. And after um, kind of getting her settled and in a sling and all those kind of things, they, they put her in a room and they ushered in like five or six doctors, neurologists and, and urologists and, um, and orthopedics and internists and all these doctors lined up. And, and one by one, they began telling her all of my issues and all of the things that they suspected might be wrong with me, all of the possible, the worst case scenarios, right? And the neurologist looked at Laura and said, he suffered a, a massive head injury. And we don't know, he may have suffered some brain damage. The jury's still out on that one. Um, <laughs> but the, the, uh, the uh, orthopedist guy looked at Laura and said, he's broken his hip. We're not sure if he's ever going to walk again, right? And they go through this list of all of these different things. I was in the hospital for, um, for almost a month. I had 13 surgeries over the next um, six months. And, and not only was I broken physically, right, but, but I, it started to affect me emotionally. I was completely dependent on others. I was dependent on the doctors and the nurses. I was totally dependent on Laura, especially once we left the hospital and our, our families. I was dependent on our friends to take care of my family that I couldn't take care of, that I couldn't provide for, that I couldn't help anymore. And so I, I slowly, uh, the weeks that I wasn't allowed to walk at all, and, and then as, as in my 30s, I, I finally was able to graduate to a walker, right? And so I'm, I'm just kind of just like inching along in this walker for a period of time. And then eventually I got to kind of upgrade to, to crutches. And then eventually he was able to start putting some weight on my leg. But the whole time I was wondering, will I ever walk again? Am I ever going to get to run with Ty again? Will I even be able to get down on the floor and, and just kind of hang with him and play with him and, and, and just hang out? Am I going to be able to be a dad? Now, the frustration starts coming in, right? The, the anger that I couldn't fix myself, the disappointments that, in every setback that I felt, the hopelessness of will I ever be whole again? And I am so blessed because for the most part, I have completely recovered from all of my injuries. But there are some that I, I still suffer from and every single day I, I have injuries that, I, I, that are a reminder to me that I'm broken. Every single morning when I look in the mirror and I, and I see my face and I'm reminded that before the accident, I used to look like this. This is tragic, people. It's tragic. <laughs> if you're going to have a plastic surgeon, make sure you tip him well, because apparently I, I didn't um, do a good job. But I do, I see, on the serious side, I, I do. There, there are some, there's some, some internal effects that I've had from the surgery that remind me every single day that I am broken, that I'm not whole, that I'm not complete. And, and, and the, the crazy thing is, is at first you, we prayed, right? Like we would pray every day. We would pray all the time. Laura and I, we would pray together and we would pray that God, because we believe that God could heal me. And I still believe that. But what happens is over a period of time, you pray and you pray and you pray and God doesn't answer those prayers for whatever reason, right? You, you start to, you pray a little less often and a little less frequently and then a little less and a little less and eventually you just kind of stop praying. And then eventually you just kind of get comfortable in your situation and you just go, you know what? This is who I am. This is what I'll be for the rest of my life. You see, change is hard, and especially when we don't know how or we don't know if we can change. And it's easy for us to make excuses. It's easy for us to give up. It's easy for us to become comfortable in our brokenness. Look at verse 8. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your sleeping mat and walk. And verse 9, instantly the man was healed. He rolled up the mat and began walking. I love, I love this. 
right? Here's a couple of, because the whole point of this series is, is looking at characteristics of, of God by looking at characteristics of Jesus. We, we see in the story that we see Jesus' knowledge, don't we? In verse 6, and it says he looked at him and he knew everything about him. He knew his situation. God knows all things. I think it's so powerful and so important for us today to know that God knows everything about you. God knows everything inside and out. He knows everything that you've ever felt, everything that you've ever thought, everything that you've ever done. And for some of us, that may seem like a scary thing. But you look at the second characteristic of Jesus that we see in this story is that we see Jesus' compassion. We see that God is a compassionate God. And Mike talked about this last week, and so I'm not going to spend any time on this. And if you missed last week's message, you need to go and listen to it because it was an incredibly powerful message on how compassionate God is. But I love this, that Jesus chose to go to this pool to be with this man. It wasn't an accident. He didn't stumble on it, right? This isn't something. He was very, very intentional and purposeful. Jesus moves towards needs, not, not comfort. And even though this guy makes excuses, Jesus acts with compassion toward him. Right? The healing is not a response of anything religious that this guy did. This healing is not a response to, to how faithful he was. It's just a matter of Jesus recognizing a need and Jesus meeting it. So no matter what you've done, no matter how far away you feel from God as you sit here today, Jesus offers compassion to each and every one of us. And here's the third thing as we look at this is, is we see Jesus' power, don't we? We see the power of him, that he heals him. And I love the word instantly. That Jesus speaks and instantly diseased muscles and bones obey him and instantly they were strengthened. 38 years of not being able to walk. There's no muscle left, right? It's completely atrophied by that point. But instantly upon speaking to him, Jesus heals this man. The power of Jesus that we see in this story. I'll be honest, some of you may be kind of skeptical and you may look at this story, you may read this story and, and maybe you're still just checking out this whole God thing and you look at that and you go, this doesn't seem fair to me. I mean, why in this crowd of people do we see Jesus heals one man? But, but if you read through the rest of, of this story, it, it doesn't tell us that, that Jesus goes on to heal anybody else in that crowd by that pool that day. And that's a legitimate question. And here's my first response, a few responses. One is that, one is we don't really know for sure, right? Because the Bible isn't written as a, as a history book. And, and John's intent was not to list every detail of every single thing that Jesus did that day. What John is doing in this story is he's taking the man who had the, the deepest need, who was at the lowest of the low at his time in life, and Jesus recognized it, and Jesus has compassion on him, and Jesus heals him, and it shows us the, the power of Jesus in this story. We don't know that Jesus didn't go on and heal a bunch of others, but we don't know if he did either. And so maybe it is true. And Mike said this last week in his message, he addressed this, and he said this. He said, we will never know all of God's perfect will, and we'll never understand all of the ways of God. And if I'm honest with you, I, I'm okay with that. God said this in, in, in Isaiah 55. It says this in his word, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything that you could imagine. See, here's what I know is true. If, if I know better than God, well, then he's not a God worth worshiping, is he? And so somewhere in there, I just have to trust that, that in my mind and, and to my understanding, this might not seem fair, but, but I'm not God. 
And I have to trust that he's got a bigger plan. Here's something that I know is true, and as we tackle this whole thing of the fairness of God, sometimes the best thing for us is pain. I remember re- hearing a story once of, of, of a bear, right? And you've got this bear and, and the bear walks and he steps in a trap and the trap snaps up around the, the foot of the bear and now he's trapped and he's in, in agony and, and stuck there. And this hunter comes along and this hunter sees the bear trapped in this condition and, and decides to show compassion to the bear. And so he loads up his, his gun and he takes aim and he shoots the bear with a tranquilizer, right? And so down goes the bear. And in the bear's mind, as he's, he's stunned and, and kind of paralyzed, but still feels everything, in the bear's mind, he's saying, why would you do that to me? I'm already trapped. I'm already in pain. Why would you cause more pain to me? And then the hunter, in his compassion, walks up to the bear, and he grabs the bear by the leg, and, and he knows that the only way to release that bear is to actually force his leg farther down into the trap, causing even more pain, but relieving the tension of the trap so that he can open up the jaws and actually set the bear free. See, I think there's times in our lives where God says, you know what, there's some things that that happen, there's some pain that occurs because ultimately this is for your benefit. I think one thing to remember in this story is that the physical healing was temporary. Yeah, Jesus heals him, and that's an incredible miracle, right? Uh, it's an incredible thing. We're not making light of that at all. But, but in the end, this man still dies, doesn't he? I mean, I would love to say to you, ladies and gentlemen, I'd love to introduce to you the man who's been alive for 2,051 years since Jesus healed him and strengthened his legs, and he is still walking the face of the earth, but he's not. See, Jesus' healing of him was fantastic, and it meant the world to him, but it was a temporary healing. And sometimes I think our perspective on things, sometimes the things that we ask for, sometimes the things that we want, it, it's, it's just, a, it's a temporary thing. It's, it's from a limited understanding. But here's what I know is true in this whole thing of, of, of the fairness of God, is that Jesus offers every one of us healing, the, the healing that matters most. See, Jesus' purpose in coming was to provide something that, that offers healing for our souls. Because we know these bodies are are weak. We know our bodies are are deteriorating, that our our bodies eventually will die. But what God says in his word is that who we really are is is our souls. It's it's an everlasting thing. And Jesus came to heal our souls for us. Every single one of us, every single person that has ever walked the face of the earth or will ever walk the face of this earth. And that is the fairness of of God. You see, it's what the gospel is all about. And we look at these three aspects of, of, of God through this, that God knows what each of us needs, and he knows that we can't fix our, our spiritual problem on our own, that we're separated from God because of our sin, because of our disobedience, because we try to do things our way instead of God's way. And so he decides to show compassion on us, and he did that by sending his son to die on a cross for our sins. And in that, we see the power of God that's displayed because Jesus isn't dead. But he rose again, and it's symbolic of the redemption, of the forgiveness, of the new life that we can have in him. That's how much God loves us. So what do we do with this? I just want two quick things, and I just want to talk to two different groups of people real quick. The first is, is if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, you're here and you're just checking out this whole God thing, um, first I just want to say we're so excited you're here. We love that. And this is a safe place for you to come and for you to begin asking those questions and investigating this God who created you and and loved you. And and we're so excited that you're here. But here's what I want you to know today is that Jesus came 
for you. You can't earn God's love. You'll never be good enough. There's nothing that you can do to cause God to love you more. There's nothing that you've ever done that would cause God to love you less than he does. Even if you didn't recognize him when you walked into this room today, God knows you and he chose you and he loves you and he died for you so that he could heal you. In Romans 5, verse 6 and 8, it says this, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if that's where you are today, here's what I want to say to you. All you have to do is, is, is this, is you just have to trust that Jesus is God. And by trusting that he's God, you're trusting that, that everything that he said is, 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 is legit, that as God, he came and he died on the cross for you to forgive you of your sins, to give you that fresh start, to reconnect you in that relationship with God. And the second thing is that you just trust God with your life. And that's big, and that's crazy. And what's that first step? Well, it's different for a lot of different people. And, and, and if you make that decision today to trust God, to trust Jesus is God, and to trust God with your life, I would challenge you and, and, and ask you, would you just tell the person that brought you today or if you came by yourself, would you look for one of the staff that are here, one of our first impressions people, and just tell them, you know what, I, I want to figure out, I, I, I believe that. that. This God loves me, and, and so I want to take those steps. I want to trust him with my life, and will you help me figure out how to begin to take those first steps in my life? But I know that many of us here, most of us in, in this room, that we have a relationship with God, and, and that God has already done a healing work in us. And here's what my challenge is for us is that you do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Now, I totally took that line um, from an Andy Stanley book that I was, I was reading this, um, this past year. And, and, and in this book, he, he makes a statement, we've all been there, right? We've either been as, as a parent or, or as a child, right, where we've asked for something, right? We've asked for something, and, and, and the response is, if I do it for you, then I'm going to have to do it for your sister, right? Or maybe it's at school with a teacher, you ask for something, the teacher says, if I do it for you, then I would have to do it for the entire class. Or maybe at work, you've asked your boss, you said, if I could just get this one thing, it would, I'd be more effective in my job. If I bought it for you, I would have to buy it for everyone. And our response to that is what we want to scream is, no, you wouldn't, right? I'm not going to tell, right? You can do it for just me. I won't tell my sister. The rest of the class doesn't need to know. I won't share it around the office. You can do it for just me. See, I think sometimes for us as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, sometimes we fall into this trap and we see pictures of, of hungry children around the world. Right? We see, we drive downtown and we see homeless men and women and, and children Cary High School has the highest population of, of homeless students in this area. We, we know of lost friends and, and, and students that we go to school with and coworkers and people who just don't know Christ. And we know that if they knew Jesus personally, it would change their lives. But what happens is we say, I wish I could. I wish I could feed everyone in the world, but I can't. I wish I could help every homeless person, but I, I just, I can't. I wish I could share Christ with everyone, but I can't. I don't have the time. I don't have the resources. I'm not big enough. It's too big of a problem. What happens is too often is we just don't do anything. I think Jesus sets an incredible example for us here. Is that you help one. You do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And yeah, it's hard to choose one sometimes. And, and yeah, it's hard to say no to others at times. But by helping one person, you can change a life for eternity. That's a huge deal. 
This is a church across all three campuses of thousands of people. Imagine what that would look like if we each went out and helped one person and improved their life and showed them what it means to, to live out this life filled with grace, full of a life filled with Jesus Christ. And imagine what that looks like as, as that grows and then each of us go out and, and help one more person and the multiplication piece that comes from that. Because here's what I believe, healed people help people. But the guy in this story, he missed it. You see, Jesus heals his legs and it says that he got up and he walks back out through the crowd. The men, the women, the children, the people that he has done life with for decades. People in need and hurt. And he is healed and he walks right past them. No matter how trapped you may feel in your hurts or your disabilities or your situation today, God can minister to your deepest needs and he wants to minister through your deepest needs. Because here's what I believe, God never wastes a hurt. And God may have a very special work planned for you. And because of the things that you are dealing with, because of the things that you have gone through in your past, that God wants to use you to minister to, to love, to help someone else who's in a similar place to you. 1 John 4.10 says this, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. You see, God loved us first and he sought us out because he cares about those in need. But God also wants us to respond to that love and to go out and to meet the needs of the people around us in his name. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the truths of your word. Father, I thank you for your love and for your grace. God, I, I thank you that you are never changing. God, I thank you that you are ever faithful. And in this story, we see that these characteristics of you, that you know us intimately and personally, everything that we've ever done, everything that we've ever said, and yet you still desire to show compassion to us. And God, it's through the power that you displayed that we can be restored and, and reunited in a relationship with you. God, thank you so much. Will you give us the courage today to respond to you, to respond to that love? And God, will you give us the courage to live in a way that impacts the lives of those people around us? Yeah, the needs are, are incredible. And, and Father, there is a, a world of hurt out there. And on our own, we may feel overwhelmed by that. But God, I pray that you give us the courage to go and to find one, to meet one person, one family. And God, may we come alongside them and love them and show that same compassion that you have shown to us into their lives. Jesus, we thank you and we love you. And it's in your name we pray, amen.